I wish it weren't so, but real learning almost always comes with struggle. If we've got to go through it, we might as well make it work for us. On this episode, how to make your struggles more productive. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 569. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of us experience struggles as a regular part of our work, as a regular part of our learning and innovation. And of course, many of us are involved in helping those of us in our teams and organizations to be able to navigate struggle effectively. How do we do that in a way that it's productive? Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert who's going to help us to really look at struggle, learning, design in a way that'll help us to move forward and actually make those struggles helpful for us and for our organizations. I'm so glad to welcome Sarah Stein Greenberg to the show. She is the executive director of the Stanford D School. She leads a community of designers, faculty, and other innovative thinkers who help people unlock their creative abilities and apply them to the world. She speaks regularly at universities and global conferences on design, business, and education. Sarah holds an MBA from Stanford's Graduate School of Business and also serves as a trustee for global conservation organization Rare. She is the author of the book Creative Acts for Curious People, How to Think, Create, and Lead in Unconventional Ways. Sarah, so glad to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Dave. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Oh, me too. And I I grabbed this line from the book that you write, despite the many pleasures of creativity, one of the toughest aspects is that there's almost always a part of your process that feels terrible. The good news is you're not the only one who feels this way. The better news, that discomfort serves you. I was thinking about that in the context of one of the experiences you write about in the book, a project you did in Myanmar. And I was wondering if you could tell us like what that process was like of kind of hitting that point where you really are struggling and feeling awful about just the process. Yeah. So this was a project that I had the opportunity to tackle when I was a grad student. And I was on a team with a couple of engineers and another business student. And we were working in partnership with an incredible organization based in Myanmar called Proximity Designs. And they serve rural small plot farmers. So people who are farming like a half an acre, quarter of an acre, and it's really subsistence farming. And we were trying to work on a range of projects that had to do with water. So how farmers were irrigating their fields, how they could store water better. And my team in particular was working on one of the core products that this organization offers, which is a, a irrigation pump. And it's a, it's a pump that basically is affordable because it doesn't rely on uh, gasoline. It doesn't need any fuel. It's a human powered pump that you kind of stand on and you treadle, you, you pedal the, the levers and that helps raise the water up from the water table using suction. But the way that this product had been designed was still more costly than the organization wanted. There was a lot of metal in the base of it. There was a lot of kind of heavy duty uh, welding. The, the manufacturing took a while. And so they were asking us to try to rethink 
how do we actually make this product much more affordable and therefore accessible to more farmers? Because it is, it so dramatically helps them improve their incomes um, Uh in just one growing season. So our team was working on really redesigning the frame of the pump, figuring out how can we take out cost? How can we make sure that the quality is still high, that farmers won't reject it because it looks too flimsy? So lots of different a kind of a combination of both the engineering constraints and the human issues that come up when you, when you are working on new product development. And I just have this very clear memory of the night before one of our design reviews, one of our presentations where we were going to show the whole class uh, our progress and get feedback. And I just was like really underwhelmed by where we were. And I realized after having this wonderful interaction with a mentor and uh, a more advanced student uh, named Nicole Kahn, that that is a really normal feeling that like when you're too close to it, what you're seeing is all the ways in which you're afraid that the thing won't measure up to the job that it's meant to do. And she, she sort of said like, oh yeah, that feeling is totally normal. Like that's, I call it the trough of despair actually. And people have a lot of different names for it. And it really reflects your anxiety that, hey, you're trying to do something big and important and and worthwhile. Is the thing that I'm producing going to matter, right? Is it going to measure up? And that I realized, because I've seen that feeling happen to so many of my students now, is a really useful and important signal, right? One, it's like you care about the quality of your work, you care about where it's headed, but also that you're in a zone where you're not sure, you don't have certainty that you can do it. You're stretching. And that is a very productive place to be as a designer, because one, it means you're working on something that like actually might be pretty innovative, right? It's uncertain. It's unclear where it's going to land. And if it's totally clear where it's going to land, it's probably unlikely to be innovative. And it means that you're growing in that moment, right? You're doing something that you didn't know how to do before. And that is very useful to be thinking about over the long haul, right? Over the course of your career, you want to be putting yourselves in situations where you're constantly growing because that's going to prepare you to better tackle the next big challenge. That was something that landed with me so much from this uh, portion of the book of thinking about this a bit. And I I don't know if I'm going to capture this well by using the word spectrum, but there's on one side there's the stuff you already know how to do you're pretty comfortable with you you know you're you're confident in your abilities and then on the on the extreme other side there's uh things that are completely over your head you're not likely to be doing anytime soon skill level confidence whatever and then there's this middle zone you call it hard but exciting and that middle zone strikes me as like so essential for being able to create movement. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about like that middle zone and like what that's like and why it's so essential for us to move forward. Well, that zone, that zone also has many names. I like your framing of it. It came about actually originally in the 20s and 30s. There was a psychologist named Lev Vygotsky who kind of named that zone. It's a little wonky, but the zone of proximal development. And what he articulated is that, you know, when you're learning something new, there's your kind of safe zone. There's the zone where like you already know how to do everything well. Then there's the zone of proximal development. It's just adjacent to that zone. And then actually there's a zone where you are under-equipped. You don't have the skills. You don't have the means. It's too far of a stretch and you're unlikely to be successful in that. But that middle zone, that zone of proximal development 
which is also sometimes called the learning zone or the challenge zone. That is where you want to be if you're mindfully stretching your abilities, but you're doing so in a way where you're, you're able to grow, you're able to be successful if you push. Yeah, that is one of the things I was so curious about, because I think about this from the context of a leader who's leading a team, who's trying to do some new innovative things, even a team that isn't necessarily charged with innovation, but often is, especially nowadays with the pandemic and everything, like really needing to look at things differently and how business is done and how we serve customers and rethink things. And you all are really good at like having figured out like how to set that up a bit, but also how to support people when they inevitably hit that trough of despair, right? And I, I guess the first part of that I'm interested in is when you think about this from a setting it up, in your case, setting up a, a, a course, in a manager's case, you know, setting up a project and thinking about how to bring this team in, what is it that you do in advance or that you even say in advance that actually helps people to start to sort a bit toward that that zone of development? Well, one of the things that we often do is we just help foreshadow that there's going to be a period that will feel uncomfortable. And one of the ways that I've seen a lot of our teaching teams do that is actually there's a wonderful image by a designer named Damian Newman, which is called the design squiggle, which if you haven't seen the design squiggle, I encourage everybody to go look it up. But it basically just describes that in a creative process, you're going to go through a period where there's a lot of ups and downs. There's kind of like a tangled hairball. You're getting a lot of insights and data and making a lot of observations. And it's going to take you a while to sort that out and tease it apart and actually then make sense of it. And it's not until you start making sense of that, that then you can sort of start to see in a more linear fashion where you might end up. And so having that visual as an early part of a, you know, a design challenge, a class, a workshop, that actually helps orient people and gives them a little bit of a sense of, of what to expect that actually, you know, we can't tell you where we're going to end up because we're trying to end up some, someplace new, right, that, that mm. we can't quite anticipate. And that reference point we then hear students refer back to. The other naming that we can often do that is very supportive of, of people helping to recognize when they're in that moment of that zone is a term that we've borrowed from mathematics education called productive struggle. So we've been talking about that struggle zone, that you know, challenge zone, and recognizing that, that is, it is actually productive when you're in that 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 is that seems to be very helpful for people. And in math education, what researchers have found is that if you give students problems that they're easily able to solve versus when the students actually struggle a bit to solve the problems, that the ones who struggle end up retaining the information and they end up being better at translating or transferring those same skills to future problems. Fascinating. And yeah, there's so, so there's something about like that engagement level that you have to go through where you're really trying to acquire the skill in a new way. You're really trying to learn it and it's uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. You don't get it right, right away. That turns out to be this extremely productive learning zone that helps you more later on. So we want to put people there, but then we want to tell you, like, it's not a big secret, like, hey, this is going to feel kind of challenging at moments. And I'd say the other thing that is really important for leaders to understand is 
that those moments of struggle can be those, you know, same moments of tension on a team, right? It, it makes people feel vulnerable. It makes people need to trust each other and lean on each other a little bit more. And so thinking about ways to develop a vocabulary as a team, whether it's identifying, you know, those moments of productive struggle, whether it's about having uh, a routine way to reflect on a challenging experience you've all gone through so that the next time you can, you can have that trust, you can have that sense of how you might support each other in the moment. Those tools are, are very, very useful for team leaders. So much about just expectations going in on the, the kinds of things that will happen and the language around it. I was thinking about that squiggle line. I think I've seen it online. I'm not sure it's the exact one you're referring to, but uh, it is a really powerful image. And it it, it got me thinking about a quote from, uh, I used to listen to Zig Ziglar years ago, and he's, he had this quote, uh, you can't climb a smooth mountain. And mm. I always thought that was really an interesting way to think about movement and moving up and learning and growth. And you experience this, you and your colleagues in the D school all the time, that and you write in the book that you know students will come into these situations and the experiences and inevitably will say this is it's too hard uh, we don't have enough time we don't have the resources kind of that pushback that i think a lot of us have both experienced and we've heard from other people that we're leading when you hear those things how have you and your colleagues found that it's what works and what doesn't in the moment to respond when you're in that, when you're hearing that kind of language from people? Well, I think one thing that's helpful as the instructor or the leader is to recognize that for what it is, which is, you know, nobody has enough, we, none of us have enough time to do anything, right? And that the thing underneath that is, is an expression of discomfort or stress or, or, or fear about not being able to fulfill the goals, right? And almost always the most useful thing to be able to do in that moment for us is to support the students to get into a more building oriented mode for a short period of time. And what I mean by that is that often that feeling is happening when students are stuck because they've been talking the problem through as opposed to orienting towards trying a small experiment and seeing what happens. So uh, in, in that particular case, when we hear that, the faculty member might say, okay, let's spend the next 30 minutes building three different really rough prototypes of your current idea, right? It might be a bad idea. It might be a good idea. We don't know yet. Let's build it out. And often, especially if students are kind of stuck because, you know, half of them think they should go in one direction and half think they should go in another direction, you just build in both directions, right? Hmm. You take a short period of time to build an extremely rough model of the idea. And one, the act of building helps you actually, you know, conceptualize the idea in a more robust way. And so all of a sudden students are like, oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, actually, your idea is more similar to mine than I write. It actually helps cut through some of the, the loss of fidelity that can happen when you're only talking about an idea. And then it gives you something that you can test with others. So then that team of students can go over to the next team and say, can you just give us five minutes worth of feedback? What do you think about this? And that provokes a new set of data, 
right? It actually allows you to get beyond that sort of bounded, constrained universe where you're just talking to each other about the concept and bring in some new input. And so often that just like helps you get back into some area of momentum. It's it's that rule that like a little bit of data or a little bit of measurement helps you more than the perfect measurement or the perfect data. So that, if you treat that in a, in a light and iterative way, is often a way to get through that moment where students feel that they, they don't have enough time or they're worried about the ultimate outcome. And one of the really important things that that can do is, especially as students then start to get the confidence to know, oh, I need to, I need to you know, transition into a building mode right now, I'm kind of stuck, is that it equips them to take on more and more ambitious and more open-ended or unknown challenges. And huh. that's where you get into that, you know, you're in that zone, you're, you're growing, you're pushing yourself, and you're embracing your ability to struggle productively. So you're making a shift from kind of the thinking, talking to the actual doing, and by doing that, surfacing new data, getting out of that, that trough a bit, and it opens up ultimately a lot more that helps people to move forward. Fascinating. That's right. And then another tool that I particularly like to use that's a retrospective tool um, is called the learning journey map. And that is a really useful way for an individual or a team to kind of assess what the experience that they've just been through has looked like in terms of those highs and lows. So the learning journey map is just a simple, um, you know, you can do it on a, a plain sheet of paper. You draw, uh, you know, kind of a, a line across the belly button of that paper horizontally. And then, uh, and that's kind of your, your X axis, which is time. And then the Y axis is just, a, you know, positive or negative attributes or emotions. You draw one line where you graph, essentially, you know, you, you, you plot the course of how much you learned over the past project or the past, you know, in our case, a, a 10 week class, for example. And you might have had moments where you were learning a lot and moments where you're learning a little. And then maybe in a different color, you also chart the highs and lows of your emotional journey. And one of the things that often sticks out is that where there's a, a gap and the emotional line is really low, but the learning line is really high, those are often moments of productive struggle, right? You were learning a lot, you were pushing yourself, you're acquiring new skills, but it didn't feel good at the time. <laughs> Only in retrospect can you go back and say, whoa, that was an area where I was really stretching. And especially when you're in a team and, you know, you can look at your teammates map and you can look at your own map and compare, you start to build that vocabulary of how, oh, I see you, you experienced that trough really early in the project when we were so unclear about where we're going. I experienced it right at the end. Okay. Now we have a better sense of how to support each other through those rough moments. And actually it turns out we have really complementary ways of working. So that is a, a fabulous tool for teams to use to take what can be an area um, that, that creates team, you know, tension on the team or misunderstanding and misalignment and turn that into a way that, that team members can really support each other and complement each other. The learning journey map really caught my attention yesterday when I was preparing for our conversation, and I was thinking about it in the context of my own career. Um, I was an instructor for Dale Carnegie for many years, and you go through this huge 300-hour-plus training program to become an instructor, and it is hard. And I thought about that map in the context of my experience, and what you just said was exactly my experience, and so many other things, too. The times that I felt like emotionally good, <laughs> confident, <laughs> all those good feelings were inevitably the times that I actually wasn't learning quite as much. 
And the opposite was also true. The times that I really felt that, um, and there were a bunch, that it was really difficult and challenging. On looking back, those were the times that I learned a skill set that I still use today, 15, 20 years later, in so many ways. And I don't think there's a way around it. <laughs> like, I, I agree. And 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 I think we I think part of what's so valuable about this is like we don't you don't want a way around it, right? But you do yeah. want to name it yeah. so that the next time you're in that, I mean, that's just such a fabulous example. Like the next time you're in that unconfident place, you can kind of be you know, confidently unconfident, right? You could know like, ah, this is, this is tough, but it's really productive because I know from past experience that this feeling means I'm learning a lot. Yeah. It, it's really interesting. Even when I think about the word learning, a lot of times I think the, the things we traditionally think of as quote unquote learning, like reading a book, listening to a podcast, taking a course, a lot of times are like have provided us knowledge or information, but I haven't necessarily led to us changing our behavior and our skill set. And then when we get into situations, as we all do inevitably professionally, where we really are being challenged regularly on that, learning actually doesn't feel very good. <laughs> I mean, it's really a struggle when you're really learning and really being pushed on something new. And one of the things that I appreciate you point out is that productive struggle often happens at some critical moments. And there's some that are actually really predictable. And I'm wondering what are those moments that we might watch for in ourselves and in others that are some of those predictable moments? Well, you know, one of those predictable moments for my students is always like right before, you know, that final sprint before, you know, the deadline before the final presentation. And and I'm not saying that just because like that's where I first noticed it and experienced it. I've now seen that happen over and over. And, you know, that actually has a lot to do with the, the power of deadlines, right? It, it is a forcing function to actually help the team make a set of decisions that perhaps they've been putting off or, you know, uncertain about how to make. And then the, you know, the time constraint like forces those difficult conversations, that final push in the shop or in the lab to, to, or, you know, on your computer to build something out. And so we see, we see some of the productive struggle happen there. Another interesting moment is around um, the experience of getting feedback. So mm -hmm. along the way, if you're you know regularly sharing your your unfinished work or your early work to to get you know help course correcting to get input from your end user from whoever you're designing for, you know those are going to be moments where you're you're opening yourself up to critique. You're opening yourself up to be told like, oh, you haven't quite hit it right, and. Often what comes up for people is like a feeling of, of protectiveness, of defensiveness, of, you know, I, I know I want the feedback, but actually what I really want is the validation. And um, I just want people to tell me I'm, do, I'm doing a good job. I'm on the right track because I've put a lot into this, this creative work. And there are some practices that I think are incredibly important to, to start to, to build around how to make those moments of getting feedback more successful and more productive for you. So one that I really like that's in the book that came from one of our teaching teams uh, led by Scott Dorley, it is a, a, a practice called the test of silence. And that is really just about 
restraining your instinct to explain away all of the potential flaws or over explain how somebody should use it or what your intention was when you're asking someone for feedback. And the reason that you want to avoid doing that is because when you're, when you're going to ship your product or when your work is going to live in the real world, or when it's going to go, you know, to the, your boss's boss's boss, it's not going to be something that you can explain every time it has to live on its own. And so you actually want to see, well, what happens when I'm not there to explain it? So being able to step back and observe, but not explain or direct when someone is interacting with your prototype and testing out your, your concept is a really important skill. So the test of silence is a way to really orchestrate a kind of like mini design review, a mini critique session for yourself in which you very consciously prevent yourself from over explaining. I totally zeroed in on the test of silence when I was preparing for our conversation because it, it resonated with something I'm working on this week. And actually, maybe I should back up for a second. I'd love to share that if it's it's helpful, but it's um one of the key messages I really get from from you and your research in the book is that providing some scaffolding around this process is really helpful. And uh, we haven't said this yet, but the a big part of the book is about 80 some is exercises the right word yeah i mean some of them are like full-blown you know design challenges you could take and do for a few weeks and some of them are exercises you could do in 10 or 20 minutes so there's a there's a big range but i think i would say the the, the reason exercises or or assignments or practices are, all of them are good names is because they are active Right. They, yeah. they ask you to engage. They ask you to try something, you know, and that back to your point about like you need to do something to right. try something to right. really learn something new. That is, you know, core to our philosophy. If you are leading a team, listen to this, and you are have any sort of a call uh, to action in your organization on creativity, design, innovation. I mean, this I mean, you absolutely have to pick up the book just just to get a, a hold of the exercises and the frameworks. And the scaffolding strikes me as really useful of, okay, how do I actually, like, I know where I want to go generally, but like, what can I latch on to, to do that? So coming back to the test of silence, this was super helpful to me this week because I'm working on um, just something new that I'm planning to uh, offer to our, our members, our academy members and community members on putting together some of our past episodes, but like packaging them in a little better way. So people will reach out to me sometimes and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to lead a new team, or I've just received, I've just got a new employee, or I'm trying to get better at my feedback skills. Like what are the two or three episodes to listen to? And I thought, huh, that'd be nice if I could put to together something with that. And I spent a good portion of the day yesterday putting together a bit of a prototype for this and what it looked like. And I was getting ready to post it yesterday and I ran out of time, so I didn't do it. And then I read last night, The Test of Silence in the book. And, <laughs> and what you described was, was completely opposite to what I was planning to post yesterday and that I didn't get time to do. What I was planning to post was, here's why I think this is important. Here's all the work I did to put this together. <laughs> um, <laughs> like this whole detailed post that I didn't mm, get to. And then yeah. I read the test of silence and I'm like, oh no, that wasn't the way to do it at all, actually. So what are you planning to do now? Well, I, I, I've opened to your advice on this, but what I was thinking of doing is posting something for folks that said, hey, 
I started working on something yesterday. It's just a prototype. Here it is. What do you think? That sounds absolutely perfect. And you even could then say, if you give me your feedback, I'll tell you a little bit more about what I'm aiming for. Right. Ah. Because some, right. Because because the, the, you could do it in two layers. So one of the things that you, you know, what you just said it, is just so perfect. It's like you actually de-emphasized your level of investment in it. You de-emphasize the amount of work that you put into it. And both of those are important because you actually want genuine feedback from people. Right. And people are often, you know, I'm sure also, you know, your particular listeners and audience, like they're going to be wanting to help you and, and kind, right. And you don't want, you don't want mean feedback, but you don't want overly kind feedback. You want real feedback. So you want to, you want to just like lower the barrier for people to be honest and, and, you know, just like candid about what their real reaction is. But then secondly, again, you want this to be able to live in a world where you can't explain to each and every person exactly how you hope that they use this thing. And so you're going to get really interesting feedback, both about what's confusing to people, what is, what misinterpretations might people have and, and actually use cases that you couldn't have come up with on your own. You're going to learn more about a wider range of, of potential uses for, for this thing that you're creating. So that setup is perfect. But then you might get even more value out of it if you then have that sort of like, okay, if you've uplifted, you know, if you've if you've entered your feedback, here's what I'm really trying to do with it. How well is it meeting my goals? And you get that second layer where people can kind of reflect and then really help you understand, you know, based on your goals, what other ideas do they have for you? What other, what other contributions might you hear that could help you think in new ways about, about perhaps other ways or complementary ways to, to strengthen this particular prototype? This is great. I'm going to do all of that. And, uh, and I think it really speaks to the power of the scaffolding and the models in the book in that uh, that's actually a problem I run into a lot is people are too kind. And I'm, I'm glad for kindness. It's one of my core values. And overuse, sometimes it, it mutes a bit of what I really need to hear. And I think that's something that a lot of leaders struggle with too, especially folks who are leading teams or senior managers and organizations is sometimes people tell them what they think they want to hear versus really having a process that you can follow that in the context of the relationships and culture actually allows people to elicit a lot more truth about what's there. And that way, you really do move forward. And ultimately, the struggle becomes a lot more productive. You surface that earlier, and it just leads to something that overall is going to be better to serve people. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's, you know, particularly for leaders, that idea of making sure that you're creating ways to get honest and accurate feedback about your own ideas. I mean, the power dynamics in so many organizations are, you know, whether it's like soft or formal power, like they really can obscure or prevent people from giving you, you know, really candid feedback. And, you know, as a leader, like you also are a creative person, you also are coming up with new ways to do things and, and you need feedback just like anyone else. So one of the other practices in the book that's around a scaffolding for critique is called the units of energy critique. And oh. that one relies on actually anonymizing the work that everybody has done and presenting it in a way that, that gets you better and more honest feedback and, and also helps you look at, as a group at a range of work that then helps you understand together what are the design principles that we're, we're aiming for um, in this particular work. So there, we have a bunch of different um, ways to kind of set up and stage a critique in which you can get that kind of honest um, and helpful feedback. 
you write in the book, although breakthroughs feel great, struggle is how you get there. And I so appreciate you being our guide on how we can help the inevitable struggle we all experience actually to be a lot more productive and to give us some useful things that'll help people move forward. So if this was helpful to you, I hope you will uh, pick up Sarah's book, utilize the resources and the models. Um, and Sarah, I shared with you that I often ask people a question at the end of conversations of what if they changed their minds on. And it's interesting, as I was reading the book, the very last uh, exercise in the book is an exercise called, I used to think, and now I think. And I thought, well, that's exactly this question, almost exactly. So I'm going to ask you that question instead of one I normally do. What's something that you used to think one way and now you think a different way? Yeah, I, this is such a wonderful way to close a, a conversation or a, a you know class or a conference. And it's rare that people are really asked, you know, like, what have you changed your mind on or how have, how have you learned or grown? You know, I think for me, one thing that just immediately springs to mind in our current context, having, you know, been through, you know, now several years of this pandemic, you know, experience is I, I used to think that there was going to be kind of like a beginning and a middle and an end. And that at the end, the so-called end of the pandemic, we'd be like going back to, or, or maybe in a new normal that would feel more stable. And I think that, you know, the, the, the new phenomenon is going to be about going back and forth. Right. So in, in my case at, at, on campus, it's like, we're going to have, you know, weeks where we're in person with our students and weeks where we're back online, right. As we experience different waves. And I think that that shift in mindset has been really important. And I, I resisted it for quite a while. Cause I think I was just so hopeful that things would become more simple and interpretable and, and, easy to understand. And now we're in this phase where what we're dealing with on an almost daily or weekly basis is, is just the continuity, you know, the, the consistency of, of change. <laughs> and I really think that that is like a, a whole different set of organizational principles and a different leadership style that I need, a different communication mode. So I, I think we're, we're finding our way in that dynamic where the, you know, I, I, and change is the constant is like an old saying, but that is really what I'm feeling right now and feeling like, how do I stretch my own skills as a leader in this particular context, in this particular moment? Sarah Stein Greenberg is the author of Creative Acts for Curious People, How to Think, Create, and Lead in Unconventional Ways. Sarah, thank you so much for your work and for your coaching. I appreciate it. Dave, it's been a pleasure. If this conversation with Sarah was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is episode 326, Growth Mindset Helps You Rise from the Ashes. My guest on that episode was Jeff Hittenberger. Uh, Jeff's been a longtime friend of Bonnie and myself for many years. Uh, we followed his career and his friendship over a number of roles. And at the time we aired that interview, he was the chief academic officer for the Department of Education here in Orange County. Jeff is really a fabulous leader. And in that episode, we talked about his own journey as a husband, as a father through growth mindset, his own journey as a leader, and then how he brought some of that perspective into his work at a very large county agency. A uh, great compliment to this conversation and a, a wonderful, genuine perspective from a wonderful leader. Episode 326 for that. I'd also recommend episode 421, Help People Learn Through Powerful Teaching. Pooja Agarwal was my guest on that episode. She's an expert 
in cognitive psychology and looking at how we learn more effectively. A lot of us learned about learning when we were kids, of course, but we didn't necessarily learn how to teach adults. And of course, one of the skills that most leaders need is an element of how to teach, how to train. Pooja in episode 421 walks us through some of the key things that we should know from science that almost every leader can benefit from in how we teach others, episode 421 for that. And then finally, episode 448 was with Neil Pazrika, The Value of Being Uncomfortable. Neil and I talked about the reality that we also talked about in this conversation today with Sarah of that uh, with a lot of learning comes struggle and discomfort. How can we navigate through that, not around it, but through it, and so that we can actually learn better and serve others and serve organizations well? Episode 448 for that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. I'm inviting you to set up your free membership over at coachingforleaders.com if you haven't done so before. There's a ton of benefits of free membership. One of them is the audio courses that are available on the coachingforleaders.com website. In addition to all the episodes that are available, searchable by topic in the free membership, there's also a number of audio courses. One of them is titled How to Get Traction. It's a five-lesson course on how to actually get moving on a new habit or skill or behavior. And you can do it over a 90-day process. It's actually a very similar model to what we do in our academy groups and cohorts on how to change behavior over time. Five steps on how to get traction. You can find that audio course inside the free membership as well as several other audio courses and, of course, all the other benefits of free membership. If you haven't already done that, set up your free membership today by going over to coachingforleaders.com. You'll have access to everything inside our website then and also, of course, the ability to really tap into every episode searchable by topic. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Hassan Osman back to the show. He's been on several times before, an expert on management and remote management as well. He's going to be back talking to us about effective management of hybrid teams, teams that are co-located, but also that are working remote at the same time. How do you manage that in this environment that's now in the pandemic, post-pandemic phase? We're going to be talking in detail with Hassan next week on that topic. Join me for that conversation with him. Have a great week and see you next Monday.